I think I was close to get to get fired from from Beverly Hills Cop because <laughs> the first the first attempts of, of themes were not received uh, so well. Finally, she gets to the oh mic and she can't sing. <laughs> you finally realized. That's why. Yeah. Oh, now we get it. Sorry, kept you back there too. We can't use any of this material. All right. Hey, let's just do this thing and get out of here. Hey, welcome to a, hmm. Let me call hmm. this here. Welcome back. It's a, look, it's an episode of some sort. So we'll just say, yeah. hey, welcome back to another episode of 1980s Now, a weekly examination of 1980s pop culture and its influence today. I can explain why I fumbled there. In a moment, my name is Will, and joining me as always are my friends and co-hosts, Kat and John. Hello, guys. How are you? Hi, guys. Good. Thanks. Mm. No, oh. no, 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 no. Well, uh-huh. No, no. <gasps> Nobody Wait. goes to New York without me, sees oh, the Back oh, to the oh, Future oh, stage oh. show, and just expects a little how you, how do you do oh, out of oh, that. Are you oh, kidding okay. me? Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> I wish you'd been with us, John. Yeah. Well, yeah. So do I. Oh. It looks like you guys had so much fun. Yeah, and what I what I want to do is, oh. you know, I got to tell you. Look, I, I want to save this and talk about it on, our, on an episode next week. But John, I got to mm-hmm. tell you, even in considering talking about it, I don't know if Kat's mm-hmm. been thinking this. I've been thinking like I don't want to oversell it and make John feel bad for missing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I want to be like, nah, you didn't miss anything. Yeah, it was fine. <laughs> if you saw the movie, you're it's good. fine. Yeah, just <laughs> meh. There's no no need to see this. Yeah, just to, you know, like I was watching a movie. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I'm so glad you guys got to see it. I wish I'd been there with you, Aww. but uh, yeah. like, I, I it, its reputation precedes it, and I know that it's probably mm. was damn good. And yeah. so I have to, the good news, John, it's on tour. See it eventually, it's on tour next oh, year. Oh, okay. Already, right. it's going to be a touring. So, I'm oh, sure, there we go. Sure, it'll be Excellent. near you. Yeah, Excellent. but we'll, we'll, hey, right. we'll tell you as much as you want to know on the next episode. <laughs> okay, next time. All right. Okay. Uh, so for, so reason- for now, I'll pretend I'm over it until next week and we'll talk about it some more. Just, yes. Yep, yep. Yeah, there you go. Just pretend. <laughs> and, and the reason why I stumbled is because I said we weren't going to have a new episode this week. And hey, where y'all are recording new content right now. This is actually new. Oh, by the way, yeah. don't forget. I think, uh, are the boys of Gen X growing up off this month, July? Yeah, we are. You guys are playing stuff still, right? That's right. Yeah, we're but we're uh, we're taking some of our greatest hits and uh, spooling that cool. into a best of album for the week, for the month. Yeah. Right. So if you haven't listened to them yet, certainly this is a good opportunity to check out Gen X Grown Up John's other podcast because you'll get a flavor for mm-hmm. what they do really well. And then you can go through their back catalog and join them again when they're back in August. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thanks. So I stumbled yeah. because we weren't going to be here, but I want to be here. And the reason why is because, well, a couple of things. One, uh, we've got some, we've got an episode we want to play for you, which is, you know, or you're going to hear clips from six of our favorite previous interviews with 1980s musical artists. And we'll tell nice. you about who, who you're going to hear from in just a moment. Um, but. What? Wait, so like Star Trek, the next generation, is yeah. this the clip show because of the writer's strike? Is that what's happening here <laughs> as well? Yes. Oh, oh <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You told us about that. <laughs> right. The Shades of Gray episode. Yes, We're doing yes. it here on this show now. Oh, now I want to cobble together clips of our, of our voices from old episodes and see if I can't make it. Without an AI, this is human. Yeah, yeah, right. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No pressure. Quick turnaround. What could you <laughs> do in the short I, amount of time? That's I took the, a month off and planned it out. <laughs> right. Then maybe. You know what I think I would do, John, is like line up tracks from like four episodes of each of us, like layered deep, and then just okay. jump mm-hmm. back and forth. <laughs> see what I get from different shows. Look for when somebody's talking to different places. Yeah. Let's grab that. Line just make up. some nonsensical chaos out of and it. It would make zero sense. Yep. <laughs> but you know what? Yeah. It would be hilarious. Hmm. No doubt. We'd have to see. I'd be, listen. Maybe less work than the regular show. Um, so, <laughs> yes. The other reason you're, that's the problem. You, you're overtasked trying to make it make sense. Quit exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> You'll still get huh. all the nonsense for less work. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Yeah, I'm really thinking about it. All right. Hey, the other thing we wanted yeah. to come to you new though this uh, this uh, this week is because we have a couple of announcements that we didn't want you to miss out on. So first up, hey, listen for our chat later this week with author Michael Thomas Perone. Uh, Michael's mm-hmm. new novel, Danger Peak, it, it's it's a, another novel, like we talked to uh, Sky McDonald a couple of weeks ago. It's another novel mm-hmm. set in the 1980s, in particular right. in 1989. Mm-hmm. And 
Yeah. Uh, it, it tells the story of a young teen who's determined to honor his brother's uh, passing by trekking his motorbike up uh, the titular Danger Peak. Um, and aided by his uh, two best friends, it's, it's, sem- it's somewhat of a little bit of a fetch quest, but it's chock full of nostalgia in the best kind of way. I don't mean that der- in, in a der- derogatory way. Um, mm-hmm. I like fetch quests. Um, but it's, What's it's- a fetch quest? <laughs> It's just I've a typical thing in video games where you have escort missions, you have fetch quests, you have huh. uh, you, know, you have like uh, defeat someone quest kind of thing. And sometimes okay. you'll talk to some non-player character and go, hello, cat. Glad you made it to the village. <laughs> it, would you please get me seven chickens from the field yeah. and I will reward you with a rupee? Right. So it's a fetch. You, you have to go get something go to then something. trade okay. or satisfy something so you can progress. So it's a fetch quest. Yeah. Got it. All right. Cool. (laughs) You know, uh, movie reviewers, certainly the the nerdy type folks that we watch that critique our current films, often use that to describe even elements of films where it's, you know, with the one thing. Speaking of which, Mm. on our next episode, let's talk about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny 2. John, have Mm. you seen it? You've seen it now, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. All three oh, yeah. Absolutely. So that's kind of fetch yes. questy. That's a, maybe an example you could recognize. Cat, it's go, it's go yes. get the one thing, bring it to the other place, okay. get the other thing. Anyway, this <laughs> book, though, has is somewhat of it is that in the best possible mm-hmm. way, because I don't think I'm giving too much away, but in order to get this motorbike up this really treacherous hill, he wants mm-hmm. to soup it up. So he's got to get some different things to, you know, oh. come up with some different ways to overcome the various, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> elements of the fire swamp, so to speak. In our, ah. in our, you know, 80s vernacular. Right, right. like they got to go get the, the gear shift of Thor, yeah. or the, <laughs> the bike chain of Damocles or whatever yeah, whatever exactly. amazing thing a fetch quest would send you off to to obtain. Yes, yes. And, uh, nice. and it's, so it's chalk. And look, he's got he's got two best friends. This reminds me of a lot of situations I was in as, as a kid, you know. He's got he's mm. aided by his best friends to go on these different quests. Uh, it's chock full of nostalgia. And just because it's set in 1989, but they're dealing with bikes and, going on adventures, but also there's all these little subtle homages uh, that remind, just remind me of films from the 1980s that I love. Like, oh, this is kind of like this. And I'll ask, I want to ask Michael to what extent he consciously did that or it's just, it's imbued, you know, cause he's an eighties kid. It's just in, it's just yeah. part of his, you know, person. Um, ah, anyway, cool. you definitely mm-hmm. gonna want to check it out, Danger Peak. Um, but we're going to speak with mm-hmm. the author, Michael Thomas Prone later this week. Listen for that. Okay. Another uh, announcement. Hey, we're going to go live this Wednesday, uh, which is the date of, let's see. Let's say it's a 14, 13, 12th. We're going to go live this Wednesday, Mm -hmm. July 12th at 8 p.m. Eastern. We're going to stream simultaneously on Facebook and YouTube. We're going to record the next episode. So all these things I'm talking about, we're going to save for next time. We're going to talk about them then. And you can Mm -hmm. join us, give us your comments, your feedback on these different things. Did you see Back Mm -hmm. to the Future, the musical? Do you want to gloat about having seen it? You'll have plenty in common with Will and Cat. Join us and do that. Uh, so anyway, join us on Facebook. Do you want to hear Will backpedal on his predictions about Indiana Jones? Oh, just John. anything. Whatever you'd like. John, you're right, John. You're absolutely right. I'm, I've been trying to pull those oh. together. I'm trying to think if I go, go do, I, do, I, do I take a sample of every time I was said anything or might take my last, remember there was an episode where you said like, this is what you predict and you made a really reasonable yeah, yeah. prediction. I don't remember what it was, but mm-hmm. it thought, sounded reasonable. And so then I was, was motivated reasonable. to downplay all of my, you know, maybe earlier insanity came up with my okay. reasonable prediction. Maybe I should just, I was just going to pull those two, but. Hmm. Oh. Hmm. Right. We like put it on a level. Like we predicted we needed to be like a 65 on a scale of a hundred. Oh, that too. To be yeah. at least satisfied. Right. Mm-hmm. We talked about that too. Yeah. And like Kat didn't need a number. She said she'd love it no matter what. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I'm going to burn all our Indiana Jones talk here, but we definitely have fertile soil that we yeah. can go back and harvest. So hey, join us if you've got any thoughts about those things this Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, on Facebook or YouTube, you can go there and uh, RSVP or whatever. Click a little thing mm-hmm. that'll remind you that's going to happen. And final announcement: I really want you guys to come and meet us at the Southern Fried Gaming Expo in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh my gosh! This month. Oh man! It's like cannot two, wait. Is it two that's weeks less away than three now? Three weeks. Almost. Yeah. It's less yeah. than. It's no, only less less two, two weeks, weeks away. Like it's two. no, it's less than three. Less than three and almost yeah, like, two. Oh, oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Cat's rounding down. That's what I would do too. I'm that excited. It's fine. <laughs> I need a little more time. George is still working on the script. We need a little oh, more time. No. I'm rounding up. So uh, four weeks from now. So yeah. Southern Fried Gaming Expo. Yep. You can go to gameatl.com to see all of the cool stuff. I mean, it's yep. it's called Southern Fried Gaming. 
Southern Fried because it's in the Southeast. It's in Atlanta mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. uh, the Waverly Hotel right there in downtown Atlanta. And mm-hmm. look, it's all about, it used to be called a Game Room Expo, but now it's board games and vintage computer games and vendors and like exhibits and and just such a, the best people end up coming to this show and you have such a great time. And it's all weekend mm-hmm. long. It's July 28th through the 30th. Very cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My, my wife asked, you know, she said, so, uh, you know, because 1980s now is doing a panel there. We're doing one of our true crimes. Yeah. It's about uh, a st- true story that happened regarding <laughs> a game or a series of mm-hmm. games in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Gen X Grown Up's doing the panel there. So my wife, you know, mm-hmm. she wanted to come and my family's like, hey, we'll come too because you're going to need somebody to sit in that auditorium listening to your panel. I was like, Oosh. good, we'll have Oosh. at least two or three people. <laughs> And then if you count Cat, John, and myself, we got six people. We're going. It's a party. There you go. Six people. That's all you really need. But my wife did ask, hey, uh, it's gaming. Is it just video games or or is there stuff that we can do? And Mm -hmm. yeah, I sure, just like you said, John, that there's plenty for everybody to do. If you like like board games at all, and we've Mm -hmm. talked about them, they have like a library of board games. And if you want to play something... You can walk up and I have different policies, different times. It used to be just like you handed your driver's license and they hand you a game for as long as you want to play it. You can sit at a table, put up a little flag that says looking for players and other random cool people that are also looking to play a game. will just sit down. You get to know people, play a Hmm. game. And it's it's just a weekend of turn off your brain and enjoy (laughs) that kind of casual stuff that usually is a break from your day. It just becomes your day. I thought he was going to say turn off your phone, but. Don't you need the brain no. for the games? Phone, I might phone's got to stay on. <laughs> I suspect I will enjoy doing something gaming, yeah. but I'm only going to stand yeah. in the same space mm-hmm. with the two of you. Like mm-hmm. I could leave right after that. I'd be like, okay, goal accomplished. So that's, jo- that's my main. And John, she's being <laughs> kind by including me. She just, all she talks about is she wants to hug John. It's 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 making me feel uncomfortable how often she talks about she hugging you. She just sat next to you for the whole exactly. Back to the Future show. Right, I'm sure she's exactly. had enough of you. Right. <laughs> and he's probably had enough of me. I, I feel like she, you like to sit in the middle at the panel. I'm going to approach John separately and ask him. Is it okay? I mean, she keeps saying she's going to hug you. Are you are you comfortable right. with this? Blink twice if you need help. Something. Gotta anticipate. <laughs> he just blinked, everybody. He blinked twice. Don't say it out loud. Oh, now Cat knows. Damn it. Oh, gosh. Yes. <laughs> I'm on to you. Yeah. We're going to need a new code now. <laughs> hey, uh, speaking of codes, use GenX Grown-Ups discount code for five bucks off your ticket when you go to GameATL.com to uh, mm-hmm. get your ticket. Heck What's yeah. that code again, John? Just GenX Grown-Up, right? It's- GenX Grown-Up, all mm-hmm. one word. And you save five bucks there for every go. ticket you buy. If you buy it for the family, five per. Yeah. Giddy up. Right. I don't remember what the ticket price either is, but that's a good percentage. That's a good percentage off the cost. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. It depends cool. on when you buy and how far ahead of time. So buy now. Avoid the rush. Right. Save money. Yes. All right. Mm-hmm. Hey, enough announcements. So here we go. Uh, you're going to hear from us here. So again, it's a compilation of clips, five to 10 minutes or less than that, each from six of our favorite uh uh, musical guests from the 1980s, including uh, Taco, Sir Mix a Lot, Taylor Dane, Chris Butler from The Waitresses, one of my favorites, Harold Faltermeyer, and all three ladies of Expose. Um, nice. Just to orient yourself so you know who you're hearing from, you'll hear a little musical clip, one of their hits right before each of the uh, interviews, so you so you know who you're, who you're about to hear from. If you'd cool. like to hear more from these artists, we've got entire, you know, full-length interviews from each of them. You can find those right. conversations with them on any podcast platform, including the one you're listening to right now. Just search mm-hmm. by their name. And mm-hmm. while Expose closes out our special episode with what sounds like the inspiration for our show name, uh, we'll first hear oh. from Taco, who tells us how Putting on the Ritz became a hit after he had moved on with his life and was yeah. just as surprising to him. Yep. Uh, <laughs> as it was to the rest of the world, how very big it became. Here's Taco. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Putting on the Ritz. You know, and I was surprised to see, to read that um, you hadn't, like you said, you weren't exposed to the American Songbook until later, and that you you didn't even hadn't even seen the performance of 
the, the original performance of putting on the Ritz, which was by uh, Clark Gable. And uh, no, actually that wasn't the original one. The original one was uh, before that in uh, putting on the Ritz. Uh, right. But you had, you hadn't seen the Clark Gable one until it was in uh, that's entertainment, which was uh, like a seventies film that MGM put out, which a compilation of different uh, clips. Yeah. 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 I, I would have I, thought that would have been something you would have had grown up seeing. Uh, no, not, not so much uh, growing up seeing, seeing the movies. It, it, it was more, you know, listen to these songs at home. Yeah. You know, listen to all the, the, all the great swing masters and, and Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald, all that. But movies was much later, much later. Right. And because my dad also went uh, with his boys, you know, to see cowboy movies. and uh, Right. So there's been three film versions, at least. Uh, certainly the most iconic is probably Fred Astaire's version in uh, Blue Skies. But Clark Gables is, is your favorite. But it seems like your delivery and your uh, iconic version of Putting on the Ritz is more like Harry Richmond in that sort of, you know, 1930s sort of more flat deadpan sort of uh, radio style. Well, I, I like the, the, the crooner era. Mm. And um, what, what inspired me also, we, we had done uh, Chicago in, Germ- in Hamburg, in Germany at, at this theater. And uh, after my debacle, I don't know if, is that an English word yes. for you? Yes, <laughs> yes. With uh, German singing, I had to come up with a complete new image. Mm. And I had uh, ripped up the, this contract and because I was very unhappy, you know, because it, it would have meant singing German all of my life. Mm. And uh, so it was, you know, going back in quarantine and thinking up a, a whole new uh, image. So I, I thought of what I did in, uh, in Chicago, you know, with, with the grease paint and, and, and the hair slimmed back and that way nobody recognized me anymore and uh, mm. and with the new Neue Deutsche Welle you know the the, the, the nouvelle folk music coming right. up I thought it would be really cool you know to take the, 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 the classic American songbook and uh, combine that with the electronic music and what was was there something particular about putting the American songbook for folks to know I mean it's dozens of classic songs uh, was there something about putting on the Ritz that uh, you connected with or that you thought would be most uh, uh, or best to be adapted to this, you know, new technology? The package was perfect because, you know, it, 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 I, I always think visual and I, I, I like the visual thought of Ritz. Right. See, see, I, when I uh, released Ritz in, uh, in Germany, the companies weren't really interested in it. I, I, I was signed uh to RCA, but it was one of these deals, you know, uh, okay, you buy my artist and, and we'll, we'll take the other artists mm. too. I was one of, one of those. Oh, so you were one of the <laughs> other artists then you're saying? Yeah. Um. They, you know, I wasn't, uh, their top, uh, favorite or anything or anything. So it was just put out. And, uh, so the first lease and, uh, to create, create a little excitement, I made this deal with big apartment, uh, stores where I would, uh, be put into the, the, the window as a puppet. And then we had this electronic music owner. And if, when enough people were attracted, you know, on the street, I would say, okay, turn the tape on. <laughs> <laughs> Not moving your mouth, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, as a robot, right. I do the rhythm. And, I, no, and after that, I would do my, uh, an autograph hour. And um, Wow. But... All that didn't help, you know, and 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 then I opened uh, a, a sports wear store with my father because I, I I I was really frustrated, you know. Here I have a whole new image, a new song, and nobody really gave a mm. <clears throat> yes. And uh, <laughs> then about half a year later, I got a phone call from Sweden, RCA Sweden, and they said, "Please come over. We want you to do promotion over here." And I go, "Oh my God." And I had nothing to lose, so I, I go to Sweden, and, and there's this Rolls at the, at the airport, mm. and, and I just had this single. I just had Ritz, and on the B side, it was After Eight. Right. Hmm. And 
And, then, and I went to the top disco there at night and oh my God, like the guys were all in tuxedos, the girls in, in evening gowns. And I go, oh my God, this is, a, this is a big thing over here. And I ended up singing uh, the A and D side 10 times. <laughs> <laughs> and when I left Stockholm to go back to Hamburg, the LP after eight was already gold status. Mm, wow. But I didn't have an LP. Right. Oh. I just, I <laughs> That's you two songs, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you, so you had to scramble and now write a, like a handful of other songs then, I guess, right? Yeah. Oh. We worked uh, 24 hours, uh, really, you know, wow. around the clock just to get this uh, after eight out. So it's a very funny story. Yeah, that's amazing. I can't imagine that feeling to think that you're going about your life in one direction when uh, the popularity for something you created is just growing in this area that you're not aware of. And then suddenly have this surprise sort of thrust on you. That's got to be uh, feel amazing. It, it was mind boggling, you know, because for, for me, the whole theme Ritz was over, you know. Yeah. But after Stockholm, it was like, oh, my God, what have I started? Yeah. And then, you know, whilst uh, composing or, or, you know, writing the lyrics, then it was time to start thinking, oh, my God, you know, th it has to be congruent. You know, the, the whole LP concept, it has to be uh, like uh, some kind of this weirdo who, <laughs> who came out of a time machine yes, from yes. 30. And, uh, and that was the fun thing, creating that. Right. And before I knew it, I was on the road. You know, we're talking 80s. But, you know, we didn't have MTV. We didn't, <laughs> we, uh, you know, let alone uh, this mass media. So I had to be there. I had to fly to all these countries. And uh, yeah, that, and that was the hard work. I like big butts and I cannot lie. You other brothers can't deny. And when a girl walks in with an itty bitty waist and a round thing in your face, you get sprung. You know, we've spoken to a few people on the show about punk rock. And one of the things associated with punk rock is punk rock is the DIY nature of it. That, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, you had folks in garages making Garage their own man. music and, you know, sort of a rejection of rock and roll from the 50s. But I don't hear much talked about the DIY nature of hip hop because you had folks in bedrooms, kitchen tables making their own music. And But it's fascinating to me. It's like I don't recall or remember or know how the information got passed around pre-internet that folks could learn how to create this music on their own. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you brought this point up because I've been a DIY guy from day one. Yeah. Um, and we, we, everybody in hip hop was. And so they'll say, well, they had garage bands. Yeah. But those garage bands got signed to deals and then they went to big studios. Mm, right. Yep. Even when the rappers had deals, they were mm. still DIY. They were still programming drum machines in the bedroom, right. sometimes printing tracks in the bedroom and then taking it in. Depends on what era we're talking about. Yeah. But in my era, I, I did everything I could at home on a four track cassette deck. Mm. Um, <laughs> and that didn't sound good enough to go to wax. Yeah. So I ended up uh, recording with a guy named Terry Date, who did a lot of the early grunge stuff also. And uh, he taught me a lot about mixing. And then I started to do it myself. I found a uh, MCI two inch tape machine. Um, it was broken. The guy just wanted us to move it. I moved it right to my house, <laughs> went inside of it. I found that it had a, a DC power supply. So basically it was turning AC to DC. And it was, I, th I, I want to say it was some weird number, like 48 volts or something like that. And that's all that was wrong with it. Hmm. I, I fixed, I've been in the electronics since I was 13 years old. I fixed it and the rest is history. That's when I started recording, making actual records in my uh, basement. So does that mean, had you not gone into music, that uh, your future may have been in electronics? Oh, oh yeah, that's easy to say. If I, if I took this took this camera and walked in my, not, I'm in my studio now, but my other two rooms over there is all electronics. Yeah. I, I built RF amplifiers, I, mm. all kind of stuff, you know, but that's really what got me into this music. I mean, my studio is full of stuff that I wired. Nobody wired anything here, right. you know, because I want to know it. On your early, you know, and, and folks may think it was just, you know, sort of consistent with the hip hop uh, braggadocia of that uh, on your albums where it would say written, composed, produced, programmed, performed and engineered by Mix-A-Lot. It's in fact true. Yeah. So was there a reason, was it that, not that you just necessarily didn't trust anybody, but maybe the quality control was easier if it was just you or did you not have a circle that maybe included like-minded people who knew about the genre or the technology? <laughs> Dude, I'm going to be honest. Yeah. I, um... Couldn't afford it. Yeah. 
Oh, I couldn't afford to go into a, a studio and pay somebody, you know, a couple hundred bucks an hour. I got to pay $150 yeah. oh, for, for a reel of tape. Yeah. So I just said, you know what? I got a tape machine. I could buy the tape. Yeah. And I tried to figure it out. I, my first two records sounded horrible. I ain't going to lie to you. Oh, I don't think so. Well, that's because you like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, uh, it sounded bad, but yep. I started to learn it. When I got around Terry Day, at that time, I could afford it. And he said, dude, this music is still probably better done at your house. Yep. And he showed me what compression was and how to use it and all that stuff and, and gates and reverbs and how to use a reverb sin as opposed to running a vocal straight through the reverb and then trying to dial in the balance mm. in the reverb itself. Wow. <laughs> as opposed to a sin, you know, down the mixer chain right. or whatever. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I learned all that stuff from him. And, uh, and then I uh, every album I've done, every single one I've done at home. Wow. I talked to Harold Faltemeyer a few months ago and he said he still has his original gear. Do you still have your original gear from uh, Swaz and a uh, seminar? I have some of it. Yep. I have some of it. I do have a, a four track cassette, uh, but it's not the original one, which was a Polaris. Think about mm. it. Polaris makes jet skis. <laughs> 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 they have made a four track four cassette track. deck. So I still have a four track cassette deck. I, I got rid of my Fostex. I had a Fostex quarter inch reel to reel, right? I had one of those and got rid of all that stuff, but I, rescued some of that old stuff. And my God, it was terrible. I, I can't believe how bad it sounds. You know, I listened to it now and it's like, damn, somebody in mastering did a good job because yeah. wow. <laughs> so, you know, I, I read that um, with square dance, the reason you did that sort of a uh, chipmunk voice, you know, where you sped it up or you slowed it down and then well, no, you sped it up, I guess, was because you didn't really want to be a rapper. Right. But at some point, it seems like you do. You, you start f- sort of finding your own or finding your sort of, you know, voice, I guess. I, yeah. I didn't want to rap, you know, I wanted to be, cause you got to remember the early days of hip hop, yep. the Sugar Hill Gang aside, um, Grandmaster Flash sure. and the Furious Five, ah. you know, you had, you know, you had DJ Cheese, all these, the DJs were the mm. stars. Right. So, uh, you know, they would do songs about the DJs. I wanted to be the DJ. Right. So I worked <laughs> with a couple other guys and, and uh, that didn't work out. And I, I said, well, I still want to make songs. And I, at the time I was selling tapes, like remix tapes. I lived in the projects. I lived on the bottom floor. So people could just knock on my window. It was like buying dope. They just buy, you know, they'd give me, give me like 10 or 15 bucks. And I do, uh, I do re- literally 45 minutes of nothing but mixes with their names in it and customize. I do customized redos of songs and put their names wow. in them. And I would do all that stuff and sell, and sell them. And um, that's, that's kind of what made me get into home recording. Right. And, and go back to the square dance thing. You're right. I slowed it down and sped it up because I recorded the song high speed, mm-hmm. right? The whole song, but it sounded normal. Right. Then I turned the speed down and I do the rap. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm your big mall dropper. You know, that's how you did it. And I sped it up. I sounded, it sounded fast. Right. It's, I, I didn't want anybody to know it was me and, it, and I didn't think it was going to sell. And then Square Dance sold oh, yeah. you know, like 50,000 copies. And it's like, oh, now I got to try to do this live? Yeah. Hell no. <laughs> I feel the light explode when we're together. And you talked about how, you know, Dee Snyder went to your high school. And so he came, he was one of the, oh, el- yeah. well, and then and twisted broke. Yeah. And you said, you tell the story about how he, he, they would have alumni come back and sing with the choir. And so here's, you know, suddenly D. Snyder's Linda Edwards was our choir teacher. Right. So what's it like to meet D then years later and find out, you know, he, he's a supporter, more than a supporter of yours, uh, years after well, he, you've seen he, him in your. Well, because of my producing partner was Rick Wake. Right. So Rick's like 19 living in a basement in Belmore in this recording studio. So, so you, I tell you, I'm working with these bands at like 18, 17, 18 felony. Then I'm working with this other band out of, out of upstate New York and we're working in the city primarily. And then I'm like 19, 20. And then I'm, I have demos now between felony and this other band, which is called the next. And that's more like, you know, that was the new wave I guess kinda. wave, if you will. Right not really punk rock. It's more wave and it's everything from the city, but this guy's a really talented songwriter I'm working with Scott and <clears throat> our stuff's getting heard and we get flown out to, to LA and we start working with a couple of producers out there and we're getting our shot with a couple of record um, companies. 
you know, remember it's all about the record companies then, you know, so now we're at like 82, 83, we're shooting all these weird record, co- you know, just, just doing our demo stuff and getting a shot and doing, um, you know, uh, what is that crap for record companies? You know, when you sit in a room and they come all down, <laughs> like, remember that? And you play in these, like the pyramid yeah, uh, or any yeah, club. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, I'm like, I can't even remember. We did all this shit. Like a showcase. Damn. Showcases. Uh, yeah, Christ. Yeah. We'd send out demo tapes at showcases. Oh, yeah. oh my land. And I played every club by then in New York with this band. Cause I devoted probably another, I don't know, year and a half. And then I was definitely lead singer there, but we had a full on band. It was great. And the great songs, but it was like, here I am 21. I'm like, screw this. Answered an ad where it was like straight, straight to 12 inch. And by then I was like in every club. I mean, I played every club from RT fireflies, bitter end, bottom line, you name it, CBs, everything with this last band. I'm 21. I answer an ad full on, go to 12, straight to 12 inch. KTU is broken. Kiss is now alive and well and living in New York, the station. Right. I'm living in New York. I'm, I'm faring well. I'm always driving in. I'm still, I'm living in my mother's house. I took it over. My mother's living in an ashram and then I'm just living in the clubs, you know, it was unbelievable. So it seems like, you know, you grew up, you know, like you talked about with your little transistor radio, you loved Stevie Wonder, you loved, you know, Motown, you, you were exposed to musicals, all these types of different music. It seems like as you're trying to come up, you were willing to sing with whatever band you thought, I guess, you fit well, with, I sang, regardless right? I mean, of, I started, th- those were original bands. Right. Like, who gets the opportunity? I wasn't singing cover bands at all. So you have to understand, right out the gate, I, I, like, a guy comes up to me, I'm working at 18 in a, in a health food store. I got to make money. And I'm like, a guy comes up to me, he went to high school with me, and he goes, well, you look at me, like, you know, I, everybody knew I sang. He goes, you want to join a band? I'm in this band. Da, 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 da. I'm the drummer. I go, yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I go, dude, of course. And he goes, well, well, Leslie, like I'm joining this band with these guys, but it's original music. I go, dude, sweet. <laughs> he's like the guy I know from high school. And he's two years older than me. And I go, I'm working in the health food store. I'm going to Nassau community and studying voice. And I'm still going to my coach in the city. And he goes, yeah, I go, I'm not going away to high school. Screw it. I'm going to stay here. I'm like in New York city. It's like the best school, you know, my best teacher in the world is here. I'm going to go to, he's out of Juilliard. What am I doing? But it was, it wasn't really the first band. It was the band that I went into him. That was felony. And when that fell apart, I was like, he's like, don't worry. Like, and I go, when I, when I made the record, tell it to my heart. And that's, and the shit hit the fan <laughs> because that was just me and Rick. Right. That's how I met Rick. And at that, at that point, are you, um, again, you sang a lot of different genres of music. You loved a lot of different genres, genres of music. Sure you did. land on the more, uh, you know, I guess it, it, more freestyle. I never thought in a thousand years I'd be doing dance music. Okay. Like that tell it to my heart would be considered a dance song. Yeah. And that all I knew was I heard Whitney Houston and I heard Aretha Franklin and I heard Natalie Cole on this station called Kiss FM. And I go, whoever is doing these women, whoever's playing these songs with these big voices, because you had to understand there was um, Alicia came out and, and there was small voices coming out and, and songs that started getting a lot of airplay. Right. This was really kind of mid eighties. And then there was big voices with great songs getting airplay. Let's take Sade out of the mix. Cause she was just so unique unto herself, but she was mid eighties. Okay. And then I go, he gets big voices. And Rick goes, don't lose sight. Now, I connected with Rick Wake because he heard my little demo tape of me with this band called Felony and me with this. And he called me up. And Frank DeSaro gave him my tape. And it was from Frank and I playing in Felony together. Hmm. So Frank introduced me because he said, I did a session with this guy, Rick. And that's how I met Rick Wake. Rick Wake is the one who was living in the basement <laughs> da, 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 da. and D's the one that took Rick under his wing and was working up already had broke with twisted sister and was working with right. Rick in one of the studios. Cause Rick was already brought over from Europe from London and was, was 19. I was 21 and he met D and D took him under his wing. Rick had a very likable big farm boy look. And everybody liked him. He was English. God knows they thought he could perform. He was an engineer. So Alicia had done some tracks in the basement or whatever in this little shithole studio in Belmore. That's all I know. And somehow Frank knew Rick. 
Somehow he gave Rick my demo because Rick, Frank and I worked together in felony. That's all that happened. And Rick heard my voice and just was like, bing, bing, bing. Here's this unknown chick, like my voice. And all I know is in my heart, I'm like, whoever sings and gets, and in my mind, I was like, I didn't know it was Clive Davis. I didn't know anything. All I know is I heard Whitney Houston. I heard Aretha Franklin, who resurrected her career, right? right. And uh, Natalie Cole. And I go, whoever gets this, gets that. Tell it to my heart. A year later, I'm 23 years old. Boom, get signed by Clive Davis. I produce that song with Rick Wake. We find it. My dad pays us, gives me the money to produce it. And that's after Rick and I put out two 12 inches already under Leslie. Right. And then we come up with a, in a baby book. We've already been produced two singles through one through Bolognese Studio. Right. <laughs> and then Bolognese. one on our own. And that was Tell It's My Heart. I know what boys like. I know what guys want. I know what boys like. Boys like. Boys like me. When you talked about, when you made that comment about, um, you know, not knowing not to play a solo for three hours, I realized something now about your music because there's something about your arrangements. I mean, they're not some of the, you know, time signatures are, you're not cut. It's not always cut time. You're playing with dissonance and assonance, you know, some of the things, but there's something practical about it in a sense that a commercial recording would be not that your goal was to be commercial or, you know, get these songs on the top 40, but there is something, a balance there. Yeah. That's um, practical. Thank you. Thank you. That's ace listing because yeah, the arrangements and the puzzle is my personal pleasure. I had no reason to continue to write songs after the band broke up other than it is fun. It is, it is. And the fun part is to arrange and, Oh, there's a little hole here for a little yep. thing. <laughs> and, you know, and, and it can be annoying because it doesn't follow regular song patterns or beats or whatever. Um, and waitresses, you're absolutely right you know, a bar of three, a bar of two, you know, even in one of the more simpler songs, Christmas Rapping, I have the pleasure of being asked to play every year with a local band or two. And there's a break in the song. We have to play it on time. Well, that's not how it went. And it ends, it slips the 60th every bar, but it rhymes up on the one. Oh, how clever. Andy Partridge, of all people, wrote a little letter, and I got to talk with him a little bit, and he pointed that out. He said, I know what you did there. <laughs> I know, Mr. Buckler. I know. I know what you did. Did you, you know, I guess nowhere in our conversation is how you've, you learned to do all these things. Is it just, are you, take, are you able to take in all these things and like a computer almost just spit out something? It, it, not, to, not that it's, uh, you know, scientific in that sense. I'm sure it's comes well, from a place of divine inspiration, but. Well, you know, that one, that's the, benefit of, 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 of an education, being in the numbers band is a goddamn education. Mm. You know, <laughs> yeah. listening to Little Feet, listening to the song Cold, 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 and when it comes to the instrumental break, tell me where the one is. <laughs> you won't be able to hear <laughs> the one. You, you know, unless you're really sharp, <laughs> you won't know where the one is. It turns around, the Little Feet being the perfect example, or Beefheart mm. being the perfect example of it makes sense but it's it's really strange and and little feet especially they almost you know their accents and you know almost every uh, subbeat is covered somewhere and um, with a, using an accent that's off time and in the middle of cold 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 they do this turnaround and the time flips backwards and probably not intentional but there's a part where I swear they get lost. Mm. Or, or they, lose, they lose the one, but it's so wonderful. You just keep going. How did I, I don't know. I just, you pick up on it. You pick up on it in avant-garde uh, music. You pick up on it in, in, in orchestral yeah. stuff. You pick up on it on, in, in jazz, kind of, kind of. Um, you know, uh, I, I have a huge hole that I need to work on. I have a lot of uh, friends, North Jersey, Popsters, all right, amazing, amazing people. They are like 
the masters of the Brian Wilson type chord progressions. Mm. They're incredible. But I would really like to master or just know more about what is what is going on in these chord progressions. You know, how did you get yep. from this key to this key? So if you think I know what I'm doing, that's very flattering. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I guess I picked up on enough stuff and I'm uneducated enough to take more risk or try and find something. Thankfully. When you're composing a piece, you know, you mentioned uh, Axel F, uh, you know, or the, the, the soundtrack for Beverly Hills Cop. Do you approach it at that point as you would a more traditional score? This was this was a very difficult job because we, we were working with with uh, close to zero examples of how we would do it. Mm. And I was sitting in front of a, of a white page. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And I was experimenting, but this is the great thing that when you start experimenting on something and you fail sometimes, <laughs> that's what makes you, that's what makes you, um, uh, create something really new, you know, and you just have to dare just, mm-hmm. it just, it just go for it. And I know I was, I, I think I was close to get, to get fired from, from Beverly Hills Club because <laughs> the, first, the first attempts of, of themes were not received uh, so well. Plus, there was the the, the 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 general problem that a comedy these days was done by by um, classical composers like Olsen or, or Hamlish or, or whomever, you know, and they used like a Hanna Barbera style orchestra, you know, right. very very well done, very 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 clever, instrumentated, very well played, very well composed, but in a way old fashioned. It, it was done so many, so many times, you know, right. and the producers and the director of Beverly Hills Cup said, we have to do something new. It has to be not this kind of music. So just sit down and try something. Right. So I was trying and trying and trying. And I think it was the fourth or fifth attempt of a theme, which I, which I played to them. And, and, um, it was still like a, ha, huh, I don't know. What do you think? And you know how this is, you know, nobody dares to, to commit, you know, because, um, you don't know, is, does this really work? Plus we had the problem that the studio got, got nervous, um, that we are not using an orchestra and we are not using the, the, the union type, uh, situation, which you had in, in, uh, in, in, in the, in the comedies before, even Eddie Murphy's, uh, um, uh, trading places before was done in, with classical music, you know? Right. So it was, it was very awkward to, and to, to convince the studio, but we, I had, I had Brockheimer and Simpson sure. and of course the, 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 the marvelous, um, Martin Brest, who had a, a, a very clear idea of what he wanted. And when I played him the first theme, which, which then turned out to be the theme of XLF, he was the first one to, to say, um, that's it. That's exactly what we need. It has the it's modern. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's R and B ish. It's, uh, it's funky. It's, uh, it's clever. It fits the character and it's very versatile. You can, you can change it in, in, in every way, you know? So I had a friend and I got the support from the, the, the three of them. And so we were able to convince the studio. Yeah. It's, it's, when I think about that theme in particular, you know, it's, it's like, like you're, to your point, it's like jazz. I mean, the intervals are kind of like, you know, jazzy, but also this sort of, it, it feels a little bit like the character could be sneaking around on an adventure, you know, this sort of, you could feel like he's tiptoeing or he's in a, on a chase scene. It's just, uh, right. yeah, right. V- very exciting. And you know, what's interesting is uh, as a child, you know, so I guess I was a teenager when the film came out, it didn't strike us as new. It struck us as just, yes, this is exactly I just felt like that's, you know, looking back, it's, you realize how innovative it was. I I don't think folks realize, you know, much in the style of, um, I guess, and and Giorgio Moroder, that in in addition to, you know, scoring a number of films in the 1980s, you also were responsible for writing some of the the songs specifically that were the ultimate hits for some of these films. Um, Folks most associate you with the uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Um, is it, uh, I don't want to say frustrating, that sounds so negative, but this uh, idea that there's so much more music that you've contributed that maybe folks don't appreciate. The, the thing is that with, with a 
blockbuster and a, a um, innovation like Beverly Hills Cop, um, you get you you, in, you made something something happened and you made something new. You, you created something which was not there before. So everybody wanted to have that. So, um, I got, I got tons of offers of similar movies. One of them I did, which was Fletch, which was pretty, pretty funny. And, uh, Fletch was in between, um, uh, Beverly Hills Cop and Top Gun. Um, so I thought, well, I'm going to do that. And it's, it's a, it's a similar texture. It's, it's of course different again, but it's, right. it's somehow similar, but, um, but then the office you're getting is um, always a, a, a stereotype. You're getting another cop movie, another buddy cop movie, another. <laughs> then you can the next the next one I, I got then was was Whoopi Goldberg's uh, Fatal Beauty, you know. And then I said, "This is it. I'm I'm not doing any of this anymore." And the problem is, I always wanted to do something where I could show my talent as as a as a, a classical. A composer as well, right. but nobody believed that I could do it. I was in a, I was like typecast, mm-hmm. and um, this for me was actually the, the the biggest frustration. And this was 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 what made me leave the, um, the Hollywood in the in the early nineties, mm-hmm. because I only got this, the same movies all the time, you know. Right. And then of course it gets boring, and you you start to repeat yourself. And the last one I did was was cuffs with with Christian Slater, and and this and then I, I was sitting there and and I was listening to one of the themes, and I said, "What the hell am I doing? I'm I'm, I'm copying myself, mm. and this can't be. So I have to refrain from that. You know, I want to I want to move on to something something else. I want to clear my mind. I want to do some really different. You know, and then thanks God I had the offer of of uh, producing the the, the Pet Shop Boy with their um, so famous um, album behavior right. and this 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 led me out of the whole of the whole uh, cop movie uh, genre and I was so I was so happy that I could do that and I'm still happy that I have done it So, Joy, you mentioned, uh, and Jeanette, one of you brought up how you hearing it on the radio for the first time. So, you guys, if you comes on the radio now, you're in the car, you're somewhere. You're, do you still listen? Do you change the channel? Do you sing along? <laughs> okay, I don't want to answer that question. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't know if I'll listen to the whole thing. I think it depends on what song it is, and and definitely what kind of mood I'm in. Yeah. But I love it. Like if I have, um, I have two boys. And yeah. uh, if I have my sons in the car with me, I'm like, hey, look, your mom's on the radio. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so that's kind of fun. Is it um, is it impressive or embarrassing to them? Um, <sighs> different. I think sometimes. Well, if it's just us, they're not embarrassed. If it's mm-hmm. just us three in the yeah. car. <laughs> but I think at one point, um, yeah, one of my sons, my younger of, of the two, was not uh, very revealing about what his mom did. Uh, and, uh, but my older son, I think always was kind of proud of it. You know, you guys, the other day, oh, maybe probably a couple months ago, actually, my daughter was at a party and she was in New York and, uh, they're holding the, the let me be the one vinyl that the record, like mm-hmm. the big, and she's like, just dancing around with her friends and singing and having a big old time. I'm like, <laughs> it's like when she was younger, she wasn't really, uh, but now she's so proud of her mom Aww. and she just, you know, her, her two second moms and she's so supportive and she's singing as well now um, mm-hmm. doing her own thing. But it, it was so funny. It is really funny. My, my daughter said to me when she went to college, please tell my roommate to take seasons change off of her ringtone. I can't take it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, was that a coincidence? I, I don't just know. I'd have oh. to ask. Well, it was funny though. Yeah, speaking of vinyl, Violet, you want to show them what you have there? Oh my gosh! Yeah, I pulled out most of my records. Oh, ah. she's got it. Yeah. Oh, look Yay. at those! I have my tape of what you know. CD. <laughs> oh my god! All my forty fives are at college, so isn't that there. isn't the the album or the vinyl album with the white cover? That's a twelve. All in jeans. Is that like a? Is that an import? Was that ever released here? It is. Um, it's it's the twelve inch single of Tell Me Why. Hmm. Oh, maybe yeah. it was. I think that was we did the photo shoot yeah, in the UK, so. but yes. 
Um, and, yeah. and that, you know, we really lament the loss of that big artwork on albums. Mm. And then it just went, it got, it just shrunken. It became like this shrunken yeah. little, you know, I mean, I think we all really love to pull out the sleeve of that really big <laughs> right. record. That's and, why I love records. Right. Like, you know, but I think I they're coming back. It. They're coming back. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, there was a statistic recently where I think it was vinyl outsold CDs for the first time since some year in 1980s. Right. It's just, just Yay. Awesome. Now, Violet, do you have a record player, Violet? I do. I have VHS tapes, cassettes, the whole thing. Oh she is legit. <laughs> yes. You're a trip. You are too much. Awesome. <laughs> she is living like she's in the 1980s or more authentically yes. than me. You know, I, I don't have any of those things. <laughs> I try, yeah. you know, make up for lost time. Yeah. So I had two questions. What was your favorite song you recorded in general? It could be anything. And then what is your favorite to perform? Performing Point of No Return is, is just the energy that we get like mm. from mm-hmm. the crowd is just beyond. And I remember we used to do this dance. That, remember when we used to like our back would be to the stage guys and our arms would go like out, like in a big circle. And, and, we, and, we, and we would all be looking at the back of the stage and, and then hear them screaming and kind mm. of eyeballing each other like, Oh my God, this is so cool. You know, <laughs> so that, that was really cool. I, I, and it's still to this day, it's just, it's the one that gets everybody just amped up. Yeah. Is there just like a moment of silence? Your backs are there and then they hear do, 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 do. And then, yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's oh, so exciting. Yeah. But I agree. I think that's the, the most favorite song most to perform fun. because it's sort of like the, the show leads up to that. And that's generally mm-hmm. the end, the last song. And there it's like everybody anticipates it. We finally get there and it's, it never disappoints. Yeah. Everyone's dancing and it's just a, it's a great, very energetic feeling to be up there and performing that song. Yeah, I have to we, agree we have, with, with the girls. We actually segued into a, a, a dance remix of it. Um, Chris mm. Cox did for us and it's amazing. Jeanette mm. holds this note out. It's just like, Wah! I remember that. I was like, oh was my gosh. Great, right? Awesome. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I'm, if we don't do it during a show, I'm like, what? What do you mean? What do you mean we're not doing it? We got to do it. You know, I just loved it. <laughs> that, that made it really rock for me. I love just bringing it from the 80s into the, you know, into now. Oh, that's funny. I didn't remember that. Yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> Now, yeah, <laughs> I got to remember what we 1980s now before I spoke with them. Huh. Uh, pretty sh- hmm. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Yes, yes. So, so does that make mm-hmm. this show a remix or a sample huh. or does that make Ooh. expose a it, remix of us? I don't know. I'm very It's confused. an interpolation. Oh, thank you. Oh, interpolation. <laughs> we want to make sure that we don't owe anybody money. Whatever it is, that one. <laughs> All right. Hey guys, thanks for hanging with us again, uh, listening to these uh, clips from these interviews. If you want to hear the whole thing, you, you can find them on our podcast, right in this app that you're listening to right now. Don't also mm-hmm. forget, we're going to be live this Wednesday, July 12th uh, mm-hmm. at 8 p.m. Eastern on YouTube and or Facebook, right. whichever you want to come and join us. Talk about, uh, what, what? I almost said Beetlejuice. We can talk about Beetlejuice, John. But back to the future, the musical, uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny and so much more. Yep. Uh, all right, folks, we will talk to you next time on 1980s Now. Until next time. <laughs> Bye-bye. This podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness.